0: Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to New Books Network. I am your host, Geraldine Gutfa. In today's episode, I'm thrilled to host Dr. Laura Upson-Four, a professor of history at the Panthéon-Sorbonne University Paris 1, and the chair of Modern Jewish History. We will talk about Laura's recent monograph, A Jewish Jewish Martial Plan, The American-Jewish Presence in Post-Holocaust France, which was published by Indiana University Press in 2022. The book traces the role of American Jewry in reconstruction efforts in post-Holocaust France. And before starting our discussion, I would like to warmly congratulate Laura for winning the National Jewish Book Award in the category of writing based on archival research in 2022. So congratulations, Laura, and welcome to the network. Uh, Thank you so much for joining us today.
1: Thank you, Jaradine. Thank you very much for having me.
0: Before discussing the book In Greater Depth, I wanted to ask you about your intellectual trajectory and more broadly your research interests. So what led you to this book?
1: Many things uh, led me to this book. Uh, It's a great question. Um, As one can hear, I was born and raised in the United States. Um, I studied sociology at Bryn Mawr and with a degree in sociology, an undergraduate degree, um, what can one do other than travel, see the world and get uh, get a job teaching English in France, right? So I, I got a job teaching English in the French public schools after my undergraduate degree and stayed for three years in France. And during that moment, I enrolled in graduate school in France. Um, I heard that one could just attend the university and... After um, the amazing experience of, uh, you know, going into debt for an undergraduate degree in the United States, uh, I was I was amazed to to find that one could have a very high quality education. Um, in the public French university system. And I enrolled independently. Um, At the time, my master's degree was broken up into two different degrees. And so the first year of my master's, I worked in sociology. And the second year, I specialized in migration studies. And it was a much broader interdisciplinary program that incorporated history, uh, sociology, and anthropology. And through that process, I met uh, Professor Nancy Green, who was actually at the Ecole des Hautes Etudes en Sciences Sociales. Um, after that degree, I wanted to return back to the U.S. to contemplate whether I wanted to pursue a Ph.D. or not. And I and the only way to answer that question for me was to to go to work and to see what it felt like to stop. After about I would say three months, I realized I really did want to do a PhD and that my 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 place was in um in the university setting and in a classroom because I, I love to teach. Um and so I was um in that time in France I was extremely uh, and increasingly interested in Jewish history. Um it's something I pursued in my coursework as an undergrad, um, but that I really came back to uh, in that period in France, and my interest blossomed. Um, part of it was linked to the fact that in French society, the topic remains to this day slightly taboo. Um, even my own students today tell me, well, you know, when I talk about my, my degree, people look at me strangely or they tell me I talk about my research and they, they say, well, why are you doing that? Um, down the street from my apartment was France's only rabbinical seminary. And there was no indication that it was a rabbinical seminary. And after maybe one or two years, I realized this building seems important. And the only indicator that it was a Jewish organization was a plaque commemorating the deportation of um, a roundup that took place in that building um, and also a security camera. And so in a way the the hidden nature of French Jewish identity and French Jewish history made me want to dig deeper. So that really created the interest. Um, That's what took me back uh, to to France, uh, where I enrolled in a PhD under the direction of Nancy Green at the École des Hautes études en sciences sociales. It was a conscious decision for me to to return to France for that degree um, and to to work on the question of uh, this American Jewish presence in France, First, initially, from a more of a perspective of migration history and looking at issues of identities and what would happen, what happens when American minorities migrate and And as I dug deeper and as I really um, got m- much more um, deeper into the archives, I realized that there is this really interesting historical topic that was evoked by others, including Yehuda Bauer and Maud Mandel, but that really deserved in a dissertation and a full-length study.
0: So I actually didn't mention this in the introduction, but the book was originally published in French in 2013. So you, what what, what year did you defend the dissertation? When did you defend the, the dissertation? Uh, the
1: dissertation I defended in 2009.
0: Okay. Um, so pretty shortly after this, you were able to publish it in French. <laughs>
1: It depends on how you define short.
0: <laughs> <laughs> at least from, from the perspective of American academia, it's relatively short.
1: <laughs> in any case, I, I managed, I, I was told at the time, why are you taking so long? Which is a question that I think many people receive. <laughs> yes, um, I- and 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 so, yes, pretty, pretty, pretty soon, relatively soon, in any case, never soon enough, um, the book came out in French uh, in 2013. And that was important for me. Um, we'll, we'll get into this, I hope. But because the book uh, is based not only on archives, but oral history interviews, many of whom were done with people who uh, were living in France and who were active in the reconstruction process, and many of whom were, were in advanced stages of their lives. Um, and so I, I really wanted to continue the conversation that I had with them in order to write the book. And, and really um, enter into a dialogue with, um, with the French Jewish population. I try to avoid the use, the use of the word community when I talk about this, because we're talking about a very diverse population. Um, and we'll talk about that, I'm sure, as well.
0: I also feel like in the French context, the word community is very negatively loaded. I think you know the term communitarism. It's it's always seen as something negative and sectarian, and so I wonder if you know besides the fact that I think I, I agree with you that it's a diverse group. So maybe the the term community kind of obscures that diversity. But I wonder to what extent it's also you know that approach is also somewhat shaped by you know the discourse in France around different religious groups and. You know all of these terms. I feel in the, in the French context are like, very political.
1: Very political. Uh, it's it's very political to. Um, it's very ins- insulting to use the term uh, communitariste. We don't really have a good translation for that word in English. Um, communitarianism, I guess, is 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 a word I, I I've heard the translation, um, but we don't usually use that as an insult. We we right. we <laughs> um and and so. It's the accusation of being uh, too much uh, self-ghettoizing, I guess, would be the term. Uh, And and so um, not being uh, enough in the larger society, active enough or integrated enough within the larger society. Um, And I think the reason why I avoid the use of the term community is also because it, it does obscure the, 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 the great diversity within French Jewish life. Um, and also the same as in the United States, the, the, the term American Jewish community is a very simple right. one, but it, it really masks the great diversity within, within that population. Um, right. So I try to move beyond thinking in terms of blocks and, and, and think more in terms of, of, um, of factions, uh, which I think is more, more accurate.
0: This is actually a fantastic segue into my next question, which is about the protagonist of the book. So uh, I would love for you to tell us a little bit more about the main themes of the book, the main claims that you're making. Uh, and perhaps a good way to start this is by telling us a bit more about who are the protagon- the main protagonist in your book. And a related question also is, who is missing from the book? Um, and here, one, one, uh, one actor that really jumped to mind when I read the book is that, um, the French state seem to have done relatively little, you know, based on the account that you that you provide in the book. So um, could you please tell us a little bit more about about this?
1: Absolutely. Absolutely. So the the book looks at the, the first decade after the Holocaust in France. Uh, the time frame I'm looking at is 1944. The liberation, the gradual liberation of France. The full liberation is, of course, in 1945. But the, the liberation of Paris is August of 1944. And, and it looks at the first 10 years, um, the date of 1954 is also important because that's the time when the claims conference monies, so reparations funds from Germany, replace the American Jewish funds to a certain extent, even though American Jewish organizations are still administrating these funds. So there's a 10-year period of time before the arrival of German reparations funds where the money that is being used to reconstruct European Jewish life is primarily coming from American Jews and their organizations. Um, And also from local populations uh, who are also giving when they can. But of course, these populations have experienced the Holocaust. They've experienced um, the the looting and the spoliations And they're not in in a good position to really be uh, philanthropists at that moment. Um, I was especially interested in the question of how French Jews reemerged and reconstructed from the point of view of welfare, but not exclusively. Um, I was interested in particular in an organization called the American Joint Distribution Committee, which is an organization that was created in the United States during World War I to help the Jewish victims of World War I, who were primarily in uh, the the Russian Empire, and the this organization, which I'll refer to as we speak as the JDC or the Joint, because in Europe the term Joint is more uh, is more well known. Um, this organization never, was hoping that it would be temporary when it was created, but never managed to shut down its operations because um, every time they tried, there was yet another crisis. And so the, the 1929 uh, crisis um, questioned whether there would be continued aid. And, and then 1933, the arrival of Hitler um, shifted the headquarters of the JDC from Berlin to Paris. And in France, it began to play a much more active role in French Jewish welfare from 1933 onwards because many German refugees sought refuge in France. And so um, the JDC was active in France before World War II and remained active during World War II. Uh, We can go into that, it's a really interesting story. And then um, its American staff had to leave at a certain point in the war and then they returned as soon as possible. So by December 1944, um, there there was a small office that reopened, and uh, and American staff was was coming back to France after basically two years, where French Jews were representing the JDC, distributing its funds um, that were being smuggled in through Switzerland, and trying their best to to cope with the the Nazi occupation, the deportations, the the vast um, uprooting of the Jewish population and the the persecution of of this population. Um, Now, the JDC is is an organization that's been studied in the past. I mentioned Maude Mandel's work. She wrote a very important article that uh, really Really inspired me um, to write a full-length study, and so I'm very much building on her work, uh, and also Yehuda Bauer, who wrote a three-volume institutional history of the JDC's work. But but the the, the book is very much um, uh, not an institutional history. For one reason is because the American Jewish presence was much more vast than just one organization. Uh, the American Jewish Committee came to France. Uh, the Jewish Labor Committee was active in France. The National Council of Jewish Women also was active in France and ran a scholarship program and a women's shelter. Um, but before the presence of these organizations, uh, as American soldiers liberated France, there were Jewish members of the American Armed Services who were extremely active in seeking out Jewish survivors as they were in hiding and as they slowly were re-emerging GIs and chaplains played a large role in helping people secure their very basic needs, blankets, food, um, safety. Uh, They were a source of protection at a moment that felt very unsafe uh, for Jews. So these are the protagonists I would say of the book, but I would be um, doing a great disservice to the book if I didn't mention another major protagonist. And and that protagonist is, of course, um, Jews in France, right? Uh, and so Jews in France, I use that term, although here I'll probably say French Jews to, to make it smoother, but Jews in France means Jews of French and foreign nationalities who live in France. So if we can recognize that there are there's a great diversity within the French Jewish population, both French and foreign Jews at the same time, then I'm going to from now on <laughs> try to use the word French Jews. Um, but French Jews are also a major actor in this book, and I really try not to make um, a shop. I, I called it during my dissertation to myself a shopping list, kind of a, or an annual report. The idea of Well, if it's a book where I write down all the great things that these organizations did and I make a list of them, that sounds like a really boring book. (laughs) It sounds also um, like an annual report. And and obviously, organizations, the organizations I'm studying, wrote their annual reports. And so we don't need a second annual report. What we do need, however, is a, a more complex history, a more critical history, a history that asks the question, how was this aid received? Um, what kind of expertise did American organizations bring, and and how was that expertise received? Was there expertise here in France that was perceived and by the American organizations, or did they just kind of rush over it and assume that they were there to save the day? Um, what about the tensions linked to the Holocaust in terms of the fact that American Jews did not experience the Holocaust? in occupied Europe, but from the safety and the comfort of the United States. Um, how did that transition work when the JDC staff came back and said goodbye or thanked its French representatives and said, okay, well, we'll take over now. Um, so, so these questions of tension that, that exist around the issue of reconstruction, competing values, competing visions of reconstruction, these are the questions that, that I, I seek to, to explore in the book.
0: So I wonder if you could tell us a little bit more about this, maybe exploring the diversity of those different groups, American quote unquote Jews and French Jews, through the lens of the the controversies that emerged after the Holocaust about how to actually go about Reconstruction. So what were the different visions for Reconstruction that were put forth by some of the actors you, you just mentioned?
1: Well, so, in order to understand those visions, maybe it's important to just state why France, because I think that does require a bit of a definition um, or an explanation uh, for for our listeners. Um, the reason why this this um, this book looks at France um, is not only because it's a fabulous place to do research, right? Which <laughs> it is. I can attest to this. I'm a excellent, little excellent education um, and a fabulous place to live. But in addition to the croissants, right, there is a reason why um, that France is actually important. It's important because uh, there's a relatively high survival rate in France for a multiple uh, number of reasons that we can explore if we have time. But, France has a um, a survival rate that means that in the aftermath of the war, it has the largest Jewish population in Western continental Europe. So there's a larger Jewish population in England and there's a larger Jewish population in Hungary, but for Western Europe on the continent, France has the largest Jewish population and it's 180,000 to 200,000 individuals. And What's very interesting about France is as a result of the, the flight from Eastern Europe, especially Poland, in the immediate aftermath of the Holocaust, uh, there is a great deal of Jewish migration coming towards France. France has two ports, one going towards mandatory Palestine and later Israel, and the other going towards the Americas, and France has... a. a and an amazing reputation in the Jewish world as a place where one can live openly as a Jew in safety, and all of this in spite of the occupation, right? But comparatively speaking, that that idea of heureux comme un juif en France, euh, heureux, pardon heureux comme Dieu en France, right? That that expression, um, w- which has its history, its own history, right? Uh, but people come to France after the war, seeking safety, seeking family, seeking. Next, the next step. They're, they're not sure where to go. And as a result, 80,000 people transit through France in the, ni- the late 1940s, between the end of the war and I'd say 48. Of those 80,000, about 32,000 stay. And, and those are Jews primarily from Eastern Europe, Yiddish speaking. And so France is actually one of the only places in Europe, it is the only place in Europe, with a growing Jewish population. And with the slow decolonization process in North Africa and the decolonization of the French colonial empire, more and more Jews are starting to settle in metropolitan France as well. And so as a result, we have a, a Jewish population that is completely renewed. It's not the same population as its pre-war population, but the demographics um are, are similar in the ni- by the 1950s. So we see that France is an anomaly in the European setting, and this provides hope for the rebirth of Judaism in Europe through the reconstruction of French Jewish life. So it's important to, to, to set out why these organizations are investing in France and, and setting up their headquarters in France as well. In terms of the second part of the question of looking at... Um, the diversity, the diversity of French Jewish life and 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 really um what different visions of reconstruction uh there were there were there were as many visions as there were I would say Jews and uh and then you also have the 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 diversity of the American Jewish organizations. One of the arguments I make in the book is that setting up shop in France was actually um, quite useful for American Jewish organizations because as Jews reemerge after the Holocaust, be it in France or the United States, it's a moment of transition. And American Jews are struggling with their own issues of um, experiencing a peak of anti-Semitism during World War II. And then the beginning of the Cold War where they're experiencing greater tolerance, um, the suburbanization, of American Jews, they need to then rebuild Jewish communities from the bottom up, um, and so American Jews are in this moment of transition. And going to France is a way for them to assert themselves, to show that their organization has relevance in this time of transition. And they have they seek out organizations in France that share their viewpoint, so they end up matching along ideological lines with different groups within French Jewish life. Now, within French Jewish life, there are deep ideological divisions. On one hand, there are French nativist Jews, which is my translation of the term Israelite, um, which I did not use I used occasionally in the book, but really I, I prefer the term French nativist um, mm. Jews, meaning Jews who who came from France, who were well-established and who really um, in general supported de Gaulle or were very firmly attached to the political center. Okay, They might be right-leaning, they might be left-leaning, but they're very much attached to the center. Those Jews are extremely different and, and they, those Jews may or may not be religious. Um, If they are religious, they might attend once a year or twice a year, um, or they might attend regularly a a synagogue of the consistory, okay, the central consistory. But we're not talking about um, an extremely orthodox population. And we're also talking about a population that might be also extremely um, secularized as well. There's also a strong communist faction within French Jewish life. And, uh, and this is perhaps something that makes American Jewish organizations uncomfortable, I would say, at that moment, uh, especially after 1947, when the Cold War tensions are, are getting much, much uh, stronger. the This strong communist faction is, of course, anti-religious, uh, but they are very much associated with maintaining a Jewish identity. So... How does one do that? Um, it's done through transmitting Yiddish. Uh, so each of these, each of these groups have their own network of, of care and, and welfare networks. Um, so, so aid is extremely important uh, an extremely important tool for maintaining um, one's political ideology, especially among the communist faction. and in France, there's also a strong anti-communist socialist faction. So the strong anti-communist socialist faction could be either uh, Jewish socialist Zionists or it could be the less Zionist, but sometimes Zionist, Bundist faction, um, which which is also very present in France. And so uh, we see that each group is creating their own network of children's homes, their own aid, legal aid clinics. Um, And so aid is given among ideological lines. And then within all of this, we have these new immigrants who are arriving, as I mentioned earlier, um, from uh, who, who, who survived the Holocaust because they were most likely inside the Soviet Union. They return to Poland, they end up in DP camps, and and then uh, come to France. So we see that the, the 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 issue of aid is not only an issue of helping those in need; it's an issue of of reigniting one's political ideology. And ensuring its future, we didn't talk about the state. We didn't. We didn't mention the missing actors. I didn't fully That's answer right. your. I was questions.
0: gonna. I was yeah. I was gonna get back to this because as you were, you know, giving us this very broad and fascinating panorama, I was thinking. But where is the French state? Because one would, I think, reasonably assume that you know perhaps the French state, which did bear you know a significant amount of responsibility for what happened on French, ter- French territory at the very least, should have had a role to play, um, after the war. So what role did it play and what, you know, what are the, what are the different ways in which, um, the French state interacted with all those organizations that you just mentioned?
1: All right. So this is a very tough question because one of the problems that I had in my research was I didn't really find many archives from the French state. And I looked, I really looked, um, I found in all of my archival work, maybe One reference to the JDC. And it was a reference uh, from an English organization. It was about, it was a letter from, you know, it was an English Jewish organization asking if they could come to France uh, to help the Jewish population. And the answer was, we don't need you because we already have a Jewish organization here. It's the Joint Distribution Committee. (laughs) I was expecting more. Um, So, as I was doing this research, uh, uh, another scholar uh, began working on her dissertation, and her name is Laur Fortage. And her goal was really to understand the state policies towards the Jewish returning deportees. So, those who had been deported from France and were coming back to France. Um, and so, her dissertation, which is now done, um, is, is a really important. Missing piece of the puzzle in terms of the state. She was able to dig deeper in the archives and find more, especially by looking at the ministry for um for the 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 prisonnier de guerre, so prisoners of war, uh, and and that was the ministry that was dealing with getting deportees back to France and whatnot. But in terms of um what was going on in daily life in France, there's a there's a paradox. The, the Vichy the Vichy government creates. A discriminatory, a discriminatory category, and then needs to eliminate this discriminatory category immediately. And so by August 1944, they've eliminated this Jewish category. Now, how do they then create a special aid program for Jews? That requires, A, thinking that there is a, that the Jews received a certain kind of treatment that was different from the rest of the population, and there is no consensus on that. At that moment, um, people might be aware of that, but the larger dominant discourse at the time—this and this is, of course, uh, Henri Rousseau's analysis—is that they're creating, you know, the the myth of resistance. And this myth of resistance. Now we're, we can debate about it, but but um, but this myth of resistance. Um, this is this dominant discourse makes it very hard for Jews to claim that they suffered specific mistreatment during during the war. And not only that, there's a great deal of Jewish self-censorship about making that claim publicly. And so we have a situation where Jews are in need of help, and they are turning to themselves. They're creating self-help and turning to the JDC is a form of self-help as well, even though that is coming from the United States. So on one hand, the the French provisional government, also, they're not, and we can see this through Laura Fortage's work, and this is kind of the nuance that she brings, they're not ignoring Jews. It's not that they want to ignore Jews. It's not that they don't see that there's a problem, but they're also overwhelmed they their, their budget is low. They almost have no funds, and and so uh, what we see is the JDC is often saying, and I and I, I say this in in the book, um, they say we have to play poker with these organizations, the state, to get them to take responsibility for a population that is that is their own responsibility. And so so the JDC is constantly seeing an effort um, from the French state to kind of uh, rely. On the JDC because these involve this involves Jews and the JDC is saying, well, you know, <laughs> you are in charge of your citizens and and so you need to be in charge of your citizens. And so there's also the issue of the, the high the high number of foreign Jews who are in France who cannot receive aid, state aid, because state aid many times is reserved for French nationals. And so um, and even when it's not reserved for French nationals, there can be discriminatory treatment against foreigners. So we see all of this 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 big mess, basically, and and Jewish organizations create this network, a very intense network of private Jewish welfare at a moment that paradoxically is um, a moment when the French welfare state is emerging. And those two things coexist at the same time, so I would say the state is, is not absent in my work, but there, it, it, my my work is not the end, um, it's not the end of the conversation on on the French state, and and I think that that uh, the, the f- future work, but also especially uh, Laura Fortache's work on this question, I think will will take us further on the issue of the state.
0: So th- that that's absolutely fascinating, and. So on the question of archives, because you said, you know, to to some degree the book is shaped by the archives that you consulted. So I wonder if you could tell us a bit more about the archives that you consulted. I imagine, you know, JDC plays a huge role in your book and it has, you know, I mean, the, the JDC has an amazing collection of archival materials. Uh, so I wonder if you could tell us a little bit more about this particular um, archival institution. And perhaps even if you have tips for people who might... Um, be eager to use the their collections. And then I would also love to hear more about other archives that you consulted for the, the project and the kind of the kinds of sources that you relied on for, for writing the book.
1: Of course, thank you. Um, that's a, a, a great question because this is this is the this is the undergirding of, of the book is really the architecture of the book is really its foundation is is of course the the work in the archives and also the oral history interviews. Um, but but I really was influenced by a work on cultural transfers and also connected history. Histoire croisé. Um, that's work that's that of course connected history or entangled history was is still you know an important buzzword. And in France it took the form of histoire croisé. Uh, an important book by um, Michael Werner and Benedict Zimmerman came out uh, at the beginning phases of my dissertation. And the, the whole idea is is to look at what happens when groups intersect, when they meet in history and they intersect. And so instead of doing a parallel comparison, French Jews on one side, uh, American Jews on the other side, and never shall these two worlds meet, I really want to understand what happened when, when these ideologies collided and when they found themselves in the same place at the same time. And and so looking at Histoire Quazet and looking at these archives it really forced me to go beyond the idea of of this shopping list <laughs> institutional history slash annual report uh, if i had just looked at the american archives i would have written a book that told us all of the about the you know wonderful accomplishments of these american organizations but i wanted to go beyond that to question the receiving society so what did french jews receive how did they receive and how did they perceive this important aid. And so French Jewish archives were extremely important to me. I looked at the archives that were available to me at the time, since since I've written the book and since my dissertation, some of these archives are now, um, have opened up. But at the time um, there, there weren't that many French Jewish archives available. Um, and so I was able to really uh, judge or assess, in certain places, at least in forms of case studies within the book, how French Jews were perceiving this American aid. And what we can see is that um, it was not a simple process, that sometimes they disagreed, sometimes they agreed. When there was agreement, mutual agreement, then we could see an importation of structures. And when there was not, we see um, we, we see that it's much more complex in conflict-ridden. And... So it's not as simple as these American Jews had money, used it as a carrot, and because they, the Americans said jump, the French Jews jumped. Uh, one of the strong uh, arguments that I make in the book, uh, or one of the arguments that I make, you can judge whether it's strong or not, but I, I, is that uh, French Jews um, really were quite important in determining whether these programs came to fruition or not. Uh, in their in the way that they perceived and received the aid. So I looked at organizations that were that your archives that were based in the United States, in France, and also in Israel. Uh, in Israel, part of the JDC archives. Now the JDC archives are online. And so a great tip to, for anyone who's listening is not to hesitate because the entire post-war collection, uh, the Geneva collection it's called, is online. And at the time I had to go to Israel to study the Geneva collection and the executive collection. um, I'm not sure if that's been put online fully, but, but the executive collection was in New York and in the Geneva collection was in Jerusalem at the time. Um, So that took me to Israel. And when I was in Israel, I discovered the interviews, oral history interviews that were done in the seventies and eighties with chaplains who had helped, liberate France. And those interviews were done, for the most part, by Alex Grobman, who I thank here um, for sharing those with the Avram Harmon Contemporary Jewish History Division. And those were made available to other historians, such as myself, which allowed me to revisit his research on Jewish chaplains and to look closely at what happened in France for those chaplains. So great sources. So the archival history is also linked to using other people's oral histories, and, and then a great part of my research was based on oral histories that I conducted myself.
0: So I would love to discuss this in greater depth, because one of the strengths of the book, I thought, was that you really brought all these characters to life. As you said, you know, they were, I think it is easy to write a boring history of institutions. Um, many others have done so before. And you didn't do that and part of the reason why it it, it, i think so engaging and just so fascinating to read through and through is because you really give us a lot of really like in-depth details of people's lives um it's it's really like i think we get a feel for how institutions are really constituted of individual individual men and women so at what point in the project did you decide to conduct those interviews? And, you know, you talked at the very beginning of the interview about um, your sociological training. So I wonder if you can talk a little bit about indiscipl- like interdisciplinary training and the kinds of skills that you brought from this different discipline into historical research. Um, and yet again, I would like to invite you to share tips with the listeners, because I think that, um, I mean, the book really demonstrates um, how comfortable you are with this process of doing oral histories and yes if you could reflect a little bit of of, you know on the process and what historians can learn from this particular set of skills
1: uh sure okay well i first of all I, i love oral history i think part of it is that um I like interacting with humans, and I think that's why. <laughs> also, I love to teach, and part of the challenge, I guess, of a dissertation is 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 being isolated and needing to work in solitary confinement <laughs> for years on end. And oral history was a wonderful way to to be with others and and do <laughs> research at the same time. So perhaps that's part of my personality, um, but the other part is my training, of course. Um, I, I learned how to do interviews from year one in, in my sociology training. And, and so doing interviews was something that was second nature to me. Um, my, my, my master's research was, was based entirely on interviewing and field work. Um, and so the idea of keeping a notebook, you know, keeping a notebook and, and, and not, this was by no means an anthropological study with, with, with official fieldwork but i i kind of treated this as fieldwork and um and doing the oral history interviews was just such a rich process as well because it was um you know here i am a very new immigrant to france and i'm discovering uh french society in general and also french jewish history and so this really brought me into deep contact with with the population I was studying, and um, it was it was a very warm way of engaging with the topic, and it was also an important. And I can't tell you the book doesn't really. It's not a book on the history of emotions, and it's not a book on the history of 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 how people, um, you know, these emotional regimes that 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 they dealt with as they are processing the Holocaust. But the the fact of 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 having these intimate conversations, really sometimes quite intimate conversations about what people experienced during the war. Because I, in order to talk about the post-war, they wouldn't jump in and talk about the post-war period. I would explain that I'm interested in the post-war period, but to get to that place, we had to make it through the war years together. They had to tell me what happened to them during the war in order to talk about the post-war. And so it gave me this intimate um connection of engaging with with the people who have experienced this history and suffered through this history and and so it it just felt closer i just felt closely connected um to the topic and i think that that gives you a proximity that is quite valuable it also that proximity can be dangerous because of course one needs to keep a scientific distance um, and of course, one needs to remember that oral history is a discourse on the past that is created during that person's present and created very much in function of who's sitting in front of them. So unlike a, a paper archive, uh, you know, a letter for, that you find from 1959 in the archives, that's not going to change depending on who reads it. But that conversation that you're having very much is dependent on, on this question of intersubjectivity. And so all of these... Theoretical issues of oral history, you know, they remain very important to me today, Um, but I I definitely recommend oral history. And and my advice is just just to jump in, to make sure um, that there is consent, to have a consent form, uh, to explain what it's for to the person, to explain that you're doing research. Um, To explain what that research means, what it means, you know, that you're going to write an article that you're going to share this with your classmates that you might publish this um, to define your project and just to, to, to jump in and and to try and the worst case scenario is that you do an awful interview and you get kicked out, right? Or or you, you do an awful interview and you need to call the person back and say, you know, I wasn't able to ask the questions I needed to ask. Is there any way I can, I can come back? And usually people are extremely happy to talk about their past and talk about themselves. And it, it was like they were waiting for the listener. They were waiting. And finally someone came to listen. And so I was very well received. I didn't have any problems um, getting people to agree to do an interview. So I would just recommend people to do oral history if they can. And in fact, I think as historians, we need to ask if one has a topic where they could do oral history and they don't. I think we need to ask people why. Why, why didn't you decide to meet with the people who, who experienced this?
0: So I wonder if you got feedback from the people you interviewed for the project on the on the book, either the the French version or the, the American. I mean, the American version, it, it was published 10 years later, so I, I'm sure they're apps for people who could give you feedback. Um, but yeah, I, I wonder if you, yeah, if people have told you, you know, I read the book and here's what I thought, or yeah. Tell us a bit more about this.
1: Well, I had interesting cases of, um, let's see, did, did I'm trying to remember. I mean, I didn't have anything really, I was of course very worried to, to, to publish the book. I, I was careful about what I published. Um, I unwittingly found someone's ex-boyfriend in the process of doing my interviews. And then she wanted me to put her in contact. I, I mean, it was really, it's a snowball. You know, when you're doing snowball interviews, you end up in people's networks. And you're in the network and people are, are asking, well, how is so-and-so? And you end up playing a role in those networks. And you definitely are changing the networks unwittingly you are influencing those networks. You're part of them, and so you need to recognize that position of power because it is a position of power. We need to be careful with it. Um, so I neglected I neglected to give information about um, <laughs> the boyfriend and connecting people, but but uh, I, I was careful not to get too deep into people's um, personal lives when I when I wrote. Um, but there wasn't really anything because we were talking about. The lives of organizations. It, there wasn't anything that horrible that I needed to uh, censor out. There, I, I did ignore people's intimate lives and the stories I knew about love stories that really it wasn't it wasn't appropriate to put it in the book. So I, I kept some things out. Um, so I wasn't worried when the book came out about um, over revealing. Uh, I stayed on topic with my book. Um, if the book had been a different topic, it would have been more difficult. Uh, so I don't recall any really, in terms of the French version, in, in, uh, any, any sort of feedback. I had really interesting cases though, of people who were related to the story. Uh, one, one man who was of Moroccan heritage, who grew up in French Jewish children's homes, who, who read the book cover to cover, and, and basically came to me with a list of notes and invited me over to have lunch with him and all of his friends from the children's home. Had a beautiful barbecue um, with all these friends. And it was an honor. I was the guest of honor and I got to answer questions on the book. Um, I presented the book uh, at the OSE. I presented the book uh, in one of the OSE's Café. OSE is a French Jewish organization that focuses on children. Um, So I presented it, um, you know, with, in that network and and what's interesting is each time i presented it people would say well of course there were american soldiers who were helping our family well yes we had american soldiers we spoke yiddish together and and so these aspects of of french jewish life that had really been ignored um kind of came out again so there were some really beautiful interactions um involving the book when so it came this
0: out. This particular point actually brings up a question that I had, which is that it seems like at the individual level, the people who were directly affected by this efforts, post-war efforts, remember the story. But it seems to me that institutionally, it's not really remembered either in the French or the American context. Uh, So am I wrong in this assessment? And if not, what is your understanding of this? And what does it say about... The relationship between French and American Jews today, about Jewish diaspora today. What's your understanding of why this memory seems to have been somewhat obscured?
1: Yes, I think you're correct. It was obscured. Um, part of it is that um, one of the organizations that the JDC helped create with French Jews was an organization called the United Social Fund, so Fonds Social Juif Unifié. That organization was very much. Uh, created to become a successor organization to the to the JDC. Um, it was designed to create, um, to fundraise for domestic needs and for needs in Israel based on the American uh, organization, the United Jewish Appeal. So it's a direct import of an American idea to France. And the reason why it worked is that French Jews were very upset about the fact that the JDC was making decisions and that they didn't have an input. And they couldn't they couldn't give their opinion. And and they were concerned that they didn't have more to say. And so um, a woman in in the in the study who is very important, uh, who is the head of the JDC in France from 1946 to 53 is a woman named Laura Margolis. We'll talk about her. Um, But Laura Margolis said, well, okay, well, you want to impact our policymaking and we want to leave France because uh, basically, her argument was French Jews don't need American Jews to be doing things for them. They need to be self-sufficient. And so her, she guided them towards the idea of creating this organization, which was finally created in 1949, um, 1950 is sometimes a date we see as well. But the organization emerged. And I think once that organization emerged, um, French Jews took ownership uh, over these organizations, they you see mentions of the JDC even in the nineteen sixties. There's conflict with the JDC. The JDC is still funding French Jewish life to a to a large extent in the sixties and even in the seventies. But today, um, you don't see much mention of the JDC inside these organizations. So, I think part of it is that uh, French Judaism came of age that they had their bar mitzvah and that that they 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 graduated in a, in a way from this American tutelage um, the older generation if you say the joint they know exactly what they're you know exactly what what one is speaking about uh, younger people are not aware of what happened so also many people didn't realize that that the aid that their families were receiving well maybe many people didn't realize, first of all, that their families were receiving aid. It is a great surprise for people to discover their family's welfare file in the Kojassor archives. Kojassor was one of the French Jewish archives I studied um, in the study, and Kojassor was created in 1945 to help Jewish individuals and families, especially stateless individuals, receive aid. And Today, those files are open. Um, they're not open to the, to the larger public, but one can write to the organization and ask to see one's family's file. And, and people are very surprised to find that their family was receiving aid. In a way, maybe stories of, of, of being needy and in poverty and needing help um get transformed over time and many of those families might have received aid and then went on to establish you know a small business uh and and were fine economically so so if they eventually succeeded financially there might not be a memory within that family history of receiving aid and needing aid so on a on a different level many people if they know that they were family received aid might not know where that money was coming from and so that money that the kosher was distributing. Was basically eighty percent to ninety percent coming from the JDC, depending on on the time period. Um, they're also receiving some money from from uh, from from state sources, some money from international sources, uh, the IRO, for example, the refugee work, and so on. But most of the money is coming from the JDC to to fuel all of these different multitude of welfare services for French Jews and Jews in France.
0: So talking about the JDC, you mentioned this very important figure in the book,, uh, which is Laura Margulis. I thought her story was absolutely gripping. and um I think she's such a fabulous window into some of the dynamics that you've described thus far. So I wonder if you could tell us a little bit more about who she at, what she was, what she did, why she is so important in the book. And also, um, what she can tell tell us, especially about the gender dynamics that play in this story, that's something we haven't really discussed so far. So, I think she's a, a good kind of entry point into into some of those questions.
1: Yes, thank you. Great, you know, with with great pleasure because I think that um, you, the the few pages that I was able to write on Laura Margolis, I think are. Um, stand out part of it is is because she was kind of the, the champion behind the scenes of my dissertation I found this wonderful letter from her um in the archives and it said something like well we're going to do this and we're going to be criticized but it will be errors based on action instead of errors based on inaction and I thought what an amazing thing to read when one is trying to finish a dissertation I love
0: this I love this
1: and so that that letter kind of um, I wish I had a copy of it still on my computer. I'm sure I have it somewhere. But I thought, what a wonderful slogan. That's kind of the motto that got me through. Okay. Well, I'm going to do it. It will be criticized. But nonetheless, it will be an era of action and not inaction. I will I will finish and I will do it. Um, and so Laura Margolis is this really interesting character because the JDC as most Jewish welfare organizations, uh, be they French or American, are run by men. Um, They're run by men. Men are in charge. Women might be there, but they're in the background. Their secretarial help, their their support staff, they are in the background. There are a few women, though, who make it into positions of leadership, and one of them is Laura Margolis. Um, My hypothesis is that the fact that she mastered so many languages helped her break through a glass ceiling. Um, Unlike other members of the JDC who were either monolingual or maybe they spoke Yiddish Yiddish and English, um, Laura Margolis was born in Constantinople. Uh, She mastered French as a child. Her family moved to Ohio when she was young. Um she spoke Hebrew at home as well, I believe, with her parents who were Zionists. Uh, they were they were Russian um, I imagine she also spoke Russian and Yiddish. And so basically she says I you know, I, I came to the United States mastering all the languages of the Middle East, but not a word of English. That's one of her quotes in one of her interviews and and she ends up um, I believe she also learned Spanish. she she, starts by you know studying social work in ohio then she moves on to the buffalo jewish community and then she's recruited to go help with the crisis the saint louis crisis in cuba um as as jews are refused you know they are not able to disembark and and so she's there to help prevent suicides and to help deal with that horrible situation when Jews find out that the visas that they had obtained to go to Cuba were um, issued by a fraudulent a fraudulent immigration authority and were not allowed to disembark. and the boat would be returned to Europe. And so Laura Margolis was on the ground there. Uh, she was then sent by the State Department to Shanghai. Uh, she, she began working with the JDC, intensely during that process. And she was taken uh, as, a, as, a, as a prisoner and detained in a Japanese internment camp. And then she was traded for a prisoner of war and, and, uh, and taken back to the United States. She was asked to testify to, you know, on her return to the United States. And, and she was with the JDC and she told them, I will testify on one condition. You have to send me to Europe. And so she's really um, a woman who who of action. She 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 does not feel comfortable sitting by. Um, she was devastated when she heard about the genocide that was taking place uh, in Europe, and she was, you know, detained at that moment and was cut off from the information. So her confrontation with that information was to say, "You need to send me there." So she went. She was sent. And she went to England. She went to Sweden. She was stationed also in Spain. Um, in, in the middle of World War II, she opened up a children's house for children who were escaping from France and, and escaping over the Pyrenees and into, into Spain. Um, you see her then after the war being sent to Belgium, where she helped with the survivors who were who were re-emerging in Belgium. She had a breakdown. She was probably beyond exhausted. Uh, and was sent back to the United States and after several months (laughs) she asked to be sent back and that's when she came to France in 1946 so she is very much uh, someone who was willing to um, willing to I don't like the term sacrifice I I don't think it's the right term here Um, but she's willing to act She's, she's refusing to stay silent she's refusing to To uh, stay on the sidelines. And this attitude, coupled with the fact that she speaks these languages, and probably coupled with a gender issue, which is the fact that women um, know how to adapt to situations where they're not going to alienate the, the egos around them. And so I think that this gave her very, very excellent diplomatic skills in France. Uh, when you see the letters that she wrote to French Jewish communal leaders, uh, she takes pains to make sure that she's respecting their schedules. Uh, so the image of the, the you know, the, the kind of bossy American uh, stereotype of, you know, yeah, I'm here. I'm going to tell you what to do and you're going to do it the way I tell you, which is a stereotype that's very prevalent at that moment in France with the larger Marshall Plan, which, you know, which is the backdrop to all of this. There's there's a Marshall Plan going on. and And the Communist Party in France is vehemently against that Marshall Plan, which they see as a veiled attempt for the American nation to conquer French markets. And so... There is a lot of propaganda against the Marshall Plan and against um, and against uh, the United States in general. And this idea of a a pushy man, uh, pushing people around and ordering them around like an army general, that that idea, um, I think she was very, very savvy, very aware. And she couldn't act like that anyways within the JDC. She was also very careful with her boss, uh, an amazing person as well, named named um, Joseph Schwartz, who um, was also someone who was very much refusing to be on the sidelines and very active in, in trying to save Jews' lives during, during the Holocaust. So um, she's very interesting. And she's also very interesting because she got married while she was in France. So... I will let the audience discover this, this uh, scandal that her wedding created. And yet again, a major double standard, other members of the JDC got married. It didn't create any waves. And yet when she got married, it did. Um, And it's quite funny what, what happens uh, and what people say. And that's where oral history comes in as well, because I never would have found anything about her. I would have found maybe the idea that she got married because she started signing her name differently after her wedding, but I never would have understood that there was a, a scandal linked to that wedding.
0: So I encourage all of the listeners to really get a hold of your book and read it as soon as possible to discover the ending to that story. Uh, our time is coming almost to an end, but um, I wanted to hear more about the intended audiences for the book. You mentioned the the larger Marshall plan, which is of course much more famous than the story you've recovered here. So, um, who are you hoping will read this book? And for this various audiences, what do you hope will be their main takeaway?
1: Okay, well, uh, first and foremost, this is, this is very much a story of what happened within the, the Jewish world, within the Jewish diaspora, specifically um, in the aftermath of the Holocaust. And so the larger question is, how did Jews respond to this major crisis? that befell them and that they feel is an unprecedented crisis. So so what happens? Who mobilizes? Um, what kind of um, conflict does this create? What kind of solidarity does this create? We didn't, I mean, I haven't talked about the solidarity, but there's a great deal of solidarity. It's not just infighting between different political factions. Uh, there is a very, very real sense of responsibility that American Jews feel when they give money to send to Europe, some philanthropists even come to see where the money is going to meet this, this, the children who are getting scholarships from their money and to enter into a close relationship with them. Um, it's a very personal thing to try to help. And so without idealizing or over-idealizing that, that solidarity, um, it is quite real and it would be it would be wrong to miss it. It would be wrong to ignore it or to say, Well, you know, I'm not going to write that, you know, organizational, you know, annual report. That solidarity is real. And so that helps us counter this attack that can be made in the historiography on American Jews and the Holocaust. And that's a major argument. Um, American Jews were not indifferent to the Holocaust. And we can see that the second they are able to respond, they do. And they're extremely active. All right. So that's a a Jewish history argument. Um, But we also see that this book and I hope this book will be read by scholars of the United States in general and scholars of France in general, um, because what we see is that this this case study allows us to um, globalize national histories and take them out of their national context and take to kind of push and and challenge our our national vision of history. Um, It's not only between French Jews and the French state. The transnational perspective is needed if we want to understand French Jewish life at this moment. So scholars of French history who are looking at purely French sources, um, they need to look beyond that to understand what's going on for this particular group. And so this also tells us more about the French relationship to its minority groups and particularism, and and how can we come to terms with um, this this experience that Jews go through during during World War II in France? There is a genocide that is happening in parallel to World War II, and um, and Simon Perigo, who just wrote a beautiful book on on the 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 efforts of French Jews to commemorate the Holocaust immediately after the Holocaust and, and through, through the 1950s. Um, his book speaks to that as well. I want to mention it here because it's a really important book um, that came out. So, the, um, so these questions of French Jews and their relationships to, to the French state and French, the French, um, French society's relationship to its Jewish minority, that that is um, that is an important part of of, um, of the equation. The U.S. part is also extremely important. Globalizing American history, ex- understanding that um, certain groups in the United States are going beyond <laughs> the American uh, space and and going to outside and it really echoing kind of the national larger trends of this expansionist state. Finally, I think that the book has a lot to say for Holocaust studies. Um, at the time when I was writing, it was very hard to make the argument that the post war period was part of Holocaust studies. And even today, sometimes I find myself having to explain that, in fact, the post war is really part of uh, Holocaust studies. Um, I think today we we understand that more. But um, understanding the post war and how we start to reconstruct and make sense of this recent past and its violence is it's essential um, for Holocaust studies. It's essential because the actions that people were unable to do during that time um, sometimes come through at that moment, as the example I just gave of American Jews who, who were unable to be as active as they wanted to be and who finally did mobilize income. In um, so I hope that the book will, will, will find this readership and I'm, I'm happy to engage with those fields.
0: So before parting ways, I would love to hear more about what you've been working on since publishing the book and your ongoing research projects and or future directions that you're hoping to to take in the in the next few months and years. OK,
1: um, well, the, the the book that I'm working on right now and that I, I'm hopefully finishing uh, that I've been finishing for quite some time now, um, the the it's kind of like a, this, you know, the 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 English version of A Jewish Marshall Plan is a, is a fully revised second edition um, that I was able to work on in parallel to working on an entirely different research project. Um, so... <laughs> When I say I'm finishing up a book, it's been like, you know, 10 years that I've been working and, de- and researching that second book. Um, it's not like, you know, this magical thing where every two years
0: people thank can write you, Thank it. you for mentioning this for, you yes, know, us younger, reason. like junior scholars. It's it's a good reminder yes. that things take yes,
1: time. It's <laughs> normal. I these podcasts quite a lot. And I think, wow, how did they do that? But in fact, no, it takes it. A decade of research at least, and and if I count closely, I think it's more than a decade but i but um one of the wonderful things about this project is is that i I got to know uh, you know people here on the ground, and one of those people is Katia Azon who is the historian and the archivist at at the ose, the French Jewish children's organization. and she said to me, You know, during World War II, there were a group of children who were sent to the United States in nineteen forty one and forty two except we never really figured out what happened to those children. And it was just a sentence like that that she said. And, and, and I set out, um, my first position was in American studies. And in that capacity, I, I had um, kind of a mission to work on American history and to put that forth. And so I set out to work on what happened to those kids once they arrived in the U.S. How did they end up in the U.S.? Um, what is the history of that group? were they a group before they arrived? What happened to them over time? Um, How do they relate to the, what happens to their group over time in terms of Holocaust memory? Um, I saw them acting as survivors and in the year 2000 commemorating Jose in the United States. And that gave birth to, asking that question about their networks gave, gave birth to this question of, well, who were these children and where did their networks begin? And so I started going backwards and realized that none of these children were French. They were all children who had come to France through a kinder transport initiative. And I realized there was kinder transport to France. And so I've been um, taking that study and kind of scaling it down and scaling it down. And so the first volume, it's, it will be several volumes because the post war uh, is a separate volume. But the first volume is on how the children came to France through Kinder transport and how they were evacuated to the United States. And so that book is, um, as I said, in the process of being finished right now. I,
0: c- I so cannot wait absolutely. to read it.
1: Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. I can't wait to share it.
0: <laughs> Laura Opsonfort, it has been such a pleasure to host you today. And this concludes our program. Thank you for listening and have a great day. Thank you so much for joining us today.
1: Thank you, Geraldine. This has been a lovely conversation.